culture is the dog and the dog wags the tail. Culture precedes politics. So if we can't engage and move culture, we're going to be fighting a losing battle. And I'm going to be fighting a winning one. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hola, Liberty Locos. Bienvenidos to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And we've got another one on tap for you today in this, the 228th episode of this very program, which means that you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 228. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. Find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is best known for coining the term Blue Republican, which became a political organization with the goal of getting Democrats to join the GOP to support Ron Paul during his 2012 presidential run. He's also the founder of WatchingAmerica.com, which translates foreign media opinion and commentary about the U.S. from all over the world. His latest book is If You Can Keep It, which aims to help liberty-minded people better communicate their ideas to the masses. He's also been a frequent contributor to this program, having appeared on several of our post-debate recap shows during the primary season. I am pleased to welcome back Mr. Robin Kerner. Robin, are you ready to roar? I was born roaring, man. Yes, you certainly were, my friend. Born roaring all the way across on the other side of the sea. I guess they have lions over there too, huh? Well, they do on the coats of arms a lot. Right, I see a lot of lion symbols. I don't know if I've ever actually seen a lion in the United Kingdom. Maybe in the no, zoo. you'd have to go to London Zoo for that, I think. Right, right. <laughs> now, Robin, as I mentioned, you've been on the show you know, before, back in episode 27, actually, pretty close to the beginning of the show. So we'll take a link to that in the show notes of today's program so people can go back and, and check that out and learn a little bit more about you. But since we already kind of got a lot of your background and you've been on the show a few times, I want to just dive right into your book. So why don't we start off with the title, If You Can Keep It? You know, that's referring to a somewhat well-known quote. So uh, what inspired you to write this book and why did you choose that as the title? Oh my goodness. Well, the, the kind of the first version of the book kind of got written about five years ago. And it actually came out of a lot of my work with Watching America. And, you know, which got me thinking about how we're under this illusion that the media are presenting to us information about what's going on in the world. But in fact, what the media is mostly presenting to us is our own paradigm, our own set of beliefs that we already have about what is or should be going on in the world, right? And that's really important because as Goethe said, you see only what you know. So if you have a load of knowledge, whether it's right or wrong about something, it determines what you can perceive about that thing. Now, when it comes to politics, that becomes hugely important, right? It's why, for example, we in the liberty movement have great difficulty bringing over our lefty friends or our neocon friends, whatever it might be, with facts and logic, right? Wait, I thought facts and logic are how we argue. I mean, that not that the whole purpose of kind of showing someone from point A to point B? And obviously I'm playing a little devil's advocate here since I read your book, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people are going to think when they hear that. They're going to think, wait, wait, isn't that exactly what we're supposed to do? Well, it's... Something we can do, but only at certain times if we want to be effective. You see, 
what I'm about and what I want the liberty movement to be about is winning supporters rather than arguments. Because the process of winning an argument in most cases will not win you a supporter, right? Now, this is because in the brain, the processes of judgment, forming a judgment and justifying your judgment after it's formed are two completely different processes. And salesmen know this, right? Salesmen know that all sales are made emotionally, right? But they will often then get the customer to reinforce their sale using facts and logic in their own mind. Now, we naturally do this anyway, right? So, for example, if we're libertarians, we may be able to explain our positions on some issue and we will use facts and we will use logic. And maybe we'll get onto Facebook and then we will use the justifications that we have for our own judgments about an issue in an argument with someone to try and change their mind. And it almost never works because the forming of the opinion, i.e. the coming to a judgment, doesn't proceed by an argumentative process. You come to your initial judgment about a thing for a myriad other reasons, many of which you're not even consciously aware of. And those reasons, um, as I say, they can be emotional, they can be due to do with upbringing, they can be there to do with culture, and they're hugely to do with what you already believe. And, you know, selling liberty isn't so much actually about selling liberty as getting someone to unlearn whatever the paradigm they're already in that's stopping them seeing what's in front of their eyes. And getting people to unlearn things that they already know that is wrong is actually harder than getting people to appreciate what we appreciate, the kind of arguments we want to make for liberty. So a lot of the success of winning supporters rather than arguments is getting someone who's listening to you to move the bar of agreeing with you down from a very high position, which you could call, must I believe this, right? In other words, I don't want to believe this. I'm looking for reasons to refute what this guy's telling me. To move that bar down to, can I believe this? Which is, I want to believe what this guy says. I'm well disposed towards this guy. I identify with this guy. I trust his motivations and his judgments. So no, it isn't as simple as a factual argument, uh, a logical argument, because they only work once someone is open mentally and emotionally open to hearing what you're going to argue with a view to believing it. Most people, most of the time are not. So is a big part of this, I mean, in sort of a layman's way of view, is it really just building trust with the person you're communicating with, making them see that you're someone that can see things the way they are or understand their perspective and show sort of an honest effort to be communicating with them as opposed to trying to defeat them in an argument? Absolutely. Because if you are in an oppositional situation, then, you know, again, unconsciously, all your mental resources kind of are poised to defend where you are against what is coming at you. So yeah, if you can build trust, I have this uh, kind of phrase I use in my seminars, right, which is all politics, the politics of identity, in the sense of you want somebody to go, I identify with this guy. And I'm not talking about color or gender or stuff like that. I'm talking about whatever gives that person's meaning, right? Whatever gives that person the ability to trust a set of views, you want to tap into that. Yeah, just like you say. You want that person to go, I identify with this guy. I can trust what he's telling me. Now, that's more of winning an argument and certainly of winning a supporter than the actual accuracy of your facts and, you know, the tightness of your logic. So, uh, yeah, that's very important. And the reason I'm writing this book, kind of to go to the initial question, is I 
want liberty to win again in this country. And it really upsets me when I see that we're losing these opportunities as a movement, because many of us often get caught up in the need to be right, right? I'm just going to show my rightness. Well, you can do that and it feels good. Like it's a bit of an ego trip to you know, prove yourself right and win an argument again, but that's not going to save the country. So, you know, a lot of this book is about understanding where is that common ground? How do you find that common ground with someone who you may disagree with politically? Because you can always do it. It's just a question of knowing how. And of course, the title is based off that famous Benjamin Franklin quote, a republic if you can keep it. So why don't you explain kind of how that title ties into what you're trying to do here with showing people how to better communicate these ideas? Absolutely. So, you know, it's right there in the Declaration of Independence that it's up to we the people to do the keeping it, right? (laughs) You know, a republic if you can keep it. It doesn't keep itself. <laughs> it doesn't keep itself. Otherwise, I've got on my wall here the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and um, you know the Declaration. Otherwise, they are just bits of paper. And you know, again, we do a lot of politics, but unless we can move the culture, unless we can move large numbers of people into a desire and insistence on the principles that are enumerated in these documents, then it is just a piece of paper. And we've seen the loss of our rights. Well, you and I, Mark, have seen the loss of our rights, but it's like a lot of folks out there, I mean, they're just letting it happen, right? It's happening around us. So I want to ask, <laughs> what is it that makes us able to keep it or not to keep it? Like what actually is it in human neurology, in human psychology, in our culture, right? Forget the politics for now. It's the substrate, the neurology, the psychology, and, and the culture that we have to understand because the politics sits on all of that. And, you know, politics is kind of the tail. Culture is the dog, and the dog wags the tail. Culture precedes politics. So if we can't engage and move culture, we're going to be fighting a losing battle, and I want to be fighting a winning one. Well, you kind of hit on something important there when you said, you know, we perceive the loss of our rights, you and I, people that already have a sense of what natural rights are and our view of that. But when we talk about rights to the rest of the public, they're not hearing the same thing. A lot of people are thinking rights, they think the right to health care or a right to have certain things. And we're using that same term and thinking they're going to hear the same thing we're hearing. But this goes back to the problem of perception. We're operating in separate paradigms. And that's a big focus of your book is the idea of the paradigm, how a lot of what we see really is based on what we already believe that we're going to see, not necessarily what we're actually seeing or what reality is. And you tie that in by, by really talking about the concept of journalism in this country. And I actually began as a journalism major back in college. I sort of ended up shifting away from that. And um, the reason is actually because of what you're saying. You know, journalism, at least today, it's basically a list of facts, a list of uh, building a story. But that story is not necessarily the full story. It's really just, um, you know, some information that's going through a certain paradigm. And that paradigm might be, you know, of a a conservative journalist in the United States. And that the way they're going to present a certain story is going to be based on the paradigm that they already exist in, not necessarily presenting a full, you know, a full view of reality. Very well put. So what I say in the book is that I'm glad you said that because sometimes I feel like I'm just going on a rant with a, <laughs> no, like, no direction I, at all. <laughs> I'm going to hire you just to sell my book, you all know? Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so as you say, this is the paradigm. And I talk about experiments that have actually been done about this that actually shows that it's not just that we interpret the world in a way that's consistent with our beliefs. We actually see things that aren't there or don't see things that are there according to what we already believe should be there. And when it comes to politics, this is huge. Now, you mentioned journalism in the media. So I'll give you an example to kind of bring it down to earth a little bit. Some time ago in the Drudge Report, there was a 
headline that was Iran test fires missile that can reach Israel. Quote. That was the main Drudge Report headline. I'm sure all your listeners know the Drudge Report. Sounds very scary. Well, if you're Israeli, I guess, or if you're a supporter of Israel. Well, now, this is the thing. You see, Matt Drudge wrote a factually accurate headline there. The Iranians had tested this missile and it could reach Israel. But you see, why did he write that? He wrote it because he, like all of his readers, is an American. And most Americans believe that the main geopolitical fault line in the Middle East is what? Jews versus Arabs, basically. Israel versus the Arab states. That's or the, Basically, the Jews versus the Muslims, Israel versus the Arab states. That's the prevailing simplistic paradigm that Americans have that Matt Drudge, I'm sure, sincerely believes. However, that headline... Although reinforcing that paradigm by speaking to, oh, look, here's another contribution to the conflict between Iran and Israel, was completely misleading. It stated the paradigm. It didn't state the facts on the ground. Why? Because the real meaning of that missile, that missile wasn't aimed at Israel. It was aimed at the Arabs. It was the Saudis who were terrified of that missile, not the Israelis. Why? Because the real fault line in the Middle East is Persians and Arabs, or Shiite and Sunni, right? Now, that meaning was completely lost in that headline. Drudge wasn't trying to mislead us, but he did because he wrote from his own paradigm. And so the facts he presented just reinforced that paradigm of the Israel versus Arabs. Sure, he chose to name the country that he felt was going to naturally be in conflict with Iran, whereas just stating the fact that the missile can reach Israel, he's leaving off all the other countries that it can also reach. Well, yeah, but the point is, that's true, but it's more than that. Because if you then looked at what happened in response to that missile and the ability of the Iranians to reach these other countries, what happened really came out of the Arab world, not Israel. So it completely kind of misinformed us of the meaning of the event, right? It wasn't exactly factually inaccurate, but in any useful sense, it was more or less wrong. And yet it was wrong in a way that reinforced the incorrect paradigm that he was in when he wrote it, right? Oh, look, here's more evidence, Israel versus Iran, which is another point I make about paradigms. And it works here in our own politics more broadly, left versus right, right? You know, people on the left see the world in ways, so they actually see different data from people on the right. And so this book is about exploring that. How does that happen neurologically and psychologically? And the reason I explore it is because of what we said in answer to your first question, which is, I want the liberty movement to start winning supporters. And the only way you're going to do that is if you understand how the world is looking to people who see the world differently from you. Because unless you understand that, you can't hack the process by which they change their minds or form their judgments. One interesting aspect of what you mentioned there in discussing that Drudge headline is that you know you don't believe Matt Drudge is trying to manipulate people with this kind of headline. And I think that's something you know, to point out because a lot of people will harp on the media, manipulating people with headlines and manipulating people with their slant on stories. And I'm sure there is an element of manipulation in the mainstream media. We have some plenty of evidence that there is. But at the same time, I think there's a deeper level of this where it's not, it doesn't need to be purposeful. You know, you can be exactly, you can be expressing your paradigm just because it's what's in your mind. It's your subconscious. It's how you're operating. It doesn't need to be manipulative. So to really change the way people are presenting things and receiving information, you really do need to change that paradigm. That's exactly right. 
I just want to, again, kind of run with that a little bit. Not only is what you've said true, it's always true because it has to be. Because there's no other way in which you can perceive the world except through a paradigm. And what do we mean by paradigm? We haven't actually defined it. It's kind of the set of concepts that you use to see and understand the world and the relationships among those concepts, right? So, yeah, it's always operating in a non-manipulative way. But we still have to understand it. And if we get hung up on the particular biases of different media, oh, MSNBC, a bunch of lefties, you know, uh, Fox, it's a neocon mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah, there's truth in that. Okay. I mean, I talk about that a little bit. But if that's where you think the main problem is, you are missing the main problem because it's deeper than that. Actually, MSNBC and Fox are both reflecting back to Americans the broader American paradigm right? Well, what does that mean? And I go into that. And that's what we currently believe as what most Americans currently believe about their country, you know, that we're the land of the free and the land of opportunity and all this stuff. These are things, parts of their paradigm that are stopping Americans seeing the loss of rights that we are so passionate about reversing. One interesting aspect of that paradigm shift that you pointed out in your book is you point out how the Chinese and the <laughs> the word should in their language and how that has a different meaning than should in our language or in our culture, I guess I should say. Can you can you describe that a little bit? I found that like a, a really interesting way to, to look at things, the sort of the moral push behind the uh, command or a direction to take a certain action. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is, I'm glad you asked me that example because this is one I always use in my introductory seminars about this when I'm training candidates, right? So, yeah, the Chinese word for should, as in, you know, I should go to the store tomorrow or you should not murder or something, the Chinese word is ingai. Now, you can translate should to ingai for years and you're going to be fine. The translations are going to work. And then one day you will find out that the word doesn't, actually work in exactly the same way. And in Chinese, you can actually also use it in slightly different situations. And the reason is this. Think about what should actually means, what it implies in English. If you say, I should do something, what you're saying is there exists a set of moral standards according to which behavior A is preferable to behavior B. So it presupposes a kind of a moral system, a given right? It's a very Judeo-Christian kind of notion, actually. This is a great example how one concept rests on or sits in an entire paradigm, right? It kind of assumes the paradigm, right? There's more to it than just the word. It's all the connections and connotations of the word and the meaning. So that's should in English. In Chinese, it has a different connotation because in Chinese, they don't have a Judeo-Christian culture. They have a Confucian one, so they don't have the idea of an absolute moral system in the same way that we do. They have a Confucian moral system which emphasizes harmony, right? So not some absolute good, but the ability of things to get along harmoniously. So that means, for example, if we go to the UN and the Americans have some, you know, discussion with the Chinese in some side room over human rights, trying to win some rights concession so that, I don't know, Obama can say, yeah, we, you know, we've pushed the Chinese and they've conceded on this issue. Um, it's great, you know, the Americans have moved to Chinese in this direction of human rights, you know, great win from Western values, et cetera, et cetera. The Americans will say the Chinese have done what they should do. The Chinese will also say, maybe, we've done what we should do, but they'll have a completely different meaning. Because what they mean when they've done it is, 
They have made a concession to the Americans and therefore increased harmony in relationship with the Americans. The increase in harmony has strategic and pragmatic value. Confucianism is much more pragmatic, right, in its focus on harmony than it is absolutely moralistic like the Judeo-Christian culture, right? So to the Chinese, they've won political capital with a partner or a competitor. To the Americans, they have moved in the direction of a high moral good. But they've actually, there's two very different things going on, right? They experience the same event completely differently. And so the same event will have different consequences and meanings for the two sides. So the Chinese government could, say, release a thousand political prisoners and the Americans will cheer this and say, look, we've shifted the morality of the Chinese. They've done the right thing. Right. And the Chinese will see that same event and have no like, concept of doing a right thing. It's just a better thing because it helped, you know, this harmoniousness that they strive for. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're talking generalities here, sure. right? So I don't want to say that they would have no concept of doing the right thing. Like That certainly isn't true. But their notion of the right thing, they may have a concept of having done the right thing, but that has itself a different sense to most Chinese and in the Chinese political culture. Absolutely. And if we don't understand that, it makes dealing with the Chinese really, really difficult, right? Just like if you are someone of the political right, if you don't understand that the politics of the left is the politics of good intention driven by the display of care for victim groups. Right, right there, I've just given you a load of really important information. Right. If you don't understand that, you're going to be really, really ineffective at changing the mind of folks on the left. They're not even in the same psychological space as you if you're on the political right. They're not even doing the same thing psychologically when they're doing politics. Robin, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into just how we can shift these political paradigms in just a minute. But first, I need to take a little time out to try to shift the paradigm of my listeners when it comes to their health care by telling them about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right, it's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing, I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. So to me, approaching this concept of the paradigm, once we understand it and understand that that's how people perceive all this information that they're getting, to me, there's kind of two approaches we can take. We can, and maybe they can be intermingled, but we either have to kind of get inside their paradigm and understand it and then try to communicate with them through that filter 
or maybe it's an and slash or we need to actually change their paradigm. So what's the approach that you kind of advocate for and how can people even start? Because, you know, just hearing that description of how the Chinese view something, I mean, as opposed to the Americans, part of that problem is where do we even start in having common ground here? How do we even begin to shift the conversation in the way that we want to? Okay, so these are great questions. So the answer is an old adage, really, that salesmen have been using for years, which is seek first to understand before insisting on being understood. (laughs) So usually when we come out of the gate with a political argument, we're just, let me show you how it is. Here's the facts. Here's the logical argument. You know, obviously be a libertarian or something, right? But no, the thing to do is to shut up until you can begin to think. Well, that is not something libertarians are typically good at. (laughs) No, you're right. And this book is a call for intellectual humility, really, in the liberty movement, right? For exactly that reason, right? Because nothing actually succeeds like success. And if a little intellectual humility and shutting up for a little while will help us succeed in moving the dial towards liberty, then, you know, that's what we should do, I think. So, yeah, so try and understand where somebody is. What is their paradigm? That obviously means lots of different things. And then when you can start to think in that person's paradigm, which involves, for example, understanding the dimensions of their moral universe. So, for example, I already mentioned that folks on the left put a lot of moral weight on uh, statements and beliefs that emphasize care over harm. Now, folks differently situated politically may emphasize more fairness over unfairness or indeed liberty over lack of liberty or domination loyalty over disloyalty, right? Now, what I do is I kind of present kind of a framework for understanding people's paradigms in the book, and then, which helps people, I think, or I hope, to understand what they're hearing and then be able to reflect it back on folks, right? If you want to change someone's mind, and you can see Donald Trump doing this. Nigel Farage just did this in England by, you know, we had Brexit in England, a massive, massive political change. They're both succeeding, and same Bernie Sanders, they're all succeeding as insurgents by reflecting back to people what they already feel, not telling them what they should think instead, okay? And so if you shut up for long enough, your customer will tell you how to sell them. And so that's what I kind of advocate for in this book. And if you do shut up long enough, then you can start to, you'll hear where the common ground is. You'll be able to speak to it. You will be able to affirm the intentions, the concerns of the person you're speaking to. It puts you on side. So instead of having an oppositional argument, you can set up whatever you're discussing as a shared problem that you're trying to find a solution to together. You will be able to see not how to argue against someone's paradigm from your own, but how to get them to look at one half of their paradigm against another half of the paradigm and see their own internal inconsistency. When they see that, they will change their mind and they will own the change. They will believe that they've made the intellectual progress. So the change that you will have caused will stick. Not like your Facebook flame wars, right? Where it's, hey, your paradigm's all wrong, mine's all right. Why don't you get it? Completely different approach. And there's a lot to this. Yeah, let's just continue on a little bit and discuss Brexit a little more as kind of an example of, of a paradigm shift. And obviously, this is a, a subject that you're you know, well familiar with, originally hailing from the United Kingdom and being very in tune with the politics there. And I think what you saw with Brexit, this is something you've mentioned before, is the success of UKIP as the way they have focused on this one issue. Their entire party has basically been based around this idea of seceding from the EU. And it seemed it was something even Nigel Farage mentioned in his speech in the EU. They laughed at him, they laughed at him, they laughed at him 17 years 
later, nobody's laughing because they actually have successfully at least uh, issued a referendum. I know it's not politically binding, but the people of Britain have spoken that they want to leave the EU, which was just unimaginable 20 years ago. So can you maybe speak to, yeah. feel free to insert your own opinion on Brexit, but more so how Nigel Farage and UKIP really were able to shift the paradigm and do exactly what you're talking about. Right, absolutely. So I'm glad you asked me this. I'm really passionate about it. So my opinion on Brexit is, you know, I just became an American three months ago and the first vote I... Well, that's how I know you're now finally an official authority on foreign affairs now that you're an American. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. But the first vote I cast as an American, was for the British to leave the European Union. And I was so pleased to be able to do that. (laughs) Let's just be clear. Brexit is, I think, the most important single democratic event in the Western world in my lifetime. That's saying a lot. Yeah, I think that's true. Now, it's huge. The important thing for the purposes of this discussion and if you get the book, you're going to kind of, you know, understand more about this, is that UKIP, his party, which was, if it wasn't for UKIP, we wouldn't have had the referendum, let alone have left the EU or being in the process of leaving the EU, right? So this tiny party that didn't exist 25 years ago, it's only 25 years old, right, has just caused this seismic event across a continent. Now, compare this to the Libertarian Party of the US, by the way, that gets 1% and thinks that's successful, right, (laughs) Um, that's been around for 40 plus years. What... Nigel did. What he didn't do was try and educate the citizens of England in a new political philosophy, right? Because they weren't asking for one. Nobody's asking for a new paradigm, right? That's the thing about paradigms. They're sticky. People want to stay in their own, right? What he did was this. He reflected back to folks a basic sense of injustice that was not political at all. There was just this niggle in mainstream, in the culture, that there's just something unfair about a bunch of unelected guys in Brussels making laws for England when the English or the British can't get rid of them. This is just kind of on its face, not fair. Now, you don't need a political ideology to have that niggle, right? You could be left voter or right voter. You don't need the ideology to make sense of that problem. The reason Nigel was so successful, UKIP was so successful, is that the mainstream of British politics, including the Labour Party, our Democrats, the Conservative Party, our Republicans, and the Liberal Democrats, our Bernie Sanders, they all were on the other side of this debate from UKIP. They were all like, more Europe is better. No, it's all fine. You know, it's all great. So there was a sense of injustice unmediated by politics that wasn't being spoken to by the political establishment. A really good way to change people's minds is to reflect back injustice, unfairness. It turns out, and there are experiments on this, that people will pay to punish unfairness, right? We're so deep in us. We've evolved this deep revulsion against like, things that we perceive to be unjust and unfair, so Nigel Farage just reflected that back. And so in doing so, so many of the British people were like, yeah, we've been feeling this. We've been feeling this as an issue. And so they got to identify with this guy, Nigel Farage, who was saying back to them things they were already feeling. He wasn't trying to change their mind. Nobody was particularly interested in exactly his solution and what we should do in the case of a Brexit. They just identified him as someone with the same kind of feeling moral concern as they had. And and the rest is history, quite literally, right? And this is important for the liberty movement here because a lot of us want to, like, you know, train 
the entire nation in the injustices of the monetary system, but nobody feels the injustices of the monetary system. They're not connected to that in their everyday life. Like, whereas everybody in England was aware of the unfairness of laws. I have to live by laws that we don't make, right? You have to touch, as Nigel did, the sense that's already there and reflect it back. If when I went to England, as the whole move towards UKIP was really happening two years ago, two years ago, there was the European Parliament elections that UKIP won. One year ago, there was the general election that UKIP came third in, in the popular vote, which was absolutely huge. 14% for a party that didn't even exist 25 years ago. Absolutely huge, right? And I was asking people, why UKIP? And I was asking people on the left and the right, and they would all say this. Well, you know, they're the only people who are talking about this issue, this issue being this issue of unfairness, right? You know, the laws not being made by the people who they affect. And immigration certainly is a symptom of that. Like we can't even control our own borders. These symptoms, they, none of them had gone to the UKIP website, worked out what their specific policy solutions were and gone, I happen to agree with that specific policy solution, so I'm voting UKIP. No, 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 it's not that. It's the emotional connection right? By talking about the things that the other guy cares about. And in the case of Nigel Farage, he was super effective because he always was seen with a pint of beer in one hand and a cigarette in another, usually leaning on the bar of a pub. Which right? kind of says, I'm one of you. I'm another I'm guy at the bar. To the folks up north who tend to vote for the Labour Party, right? They're working class, blue collar, voting Democrat equivalent, right? He said to them, I'm one of you exactly in that way. But the interesting thing was the Labour Party's politics were in so many ways, are in so many ways, the opposite of UKIP, right? So the political gap between UKIP and the Labour Party is massive. So he didn't try and close that with political arguments. He just started looking like them, talking like them, and showing them that he could think like them. He found the cultural common ground. Oh my God, this is so important and I have a whole chapter on this in the book, right? What we need to do as libertarians is close the cultural gap with non-libertarians and the politics will follow. The politics will follow. All right, well, people can find a little bit more about your advice on just how to do that, just how to shift these paradigms, just how to change the sort of cultural view of what's unfair, what's unjust, and show people that maybe we have the solutions without trying to to force it down their throat. And I think you do an excellent job of doing that in your book, if you can keep it. Robin, before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody the full roundup of how they can find, if you can keep it, and feel free to plug away on Blue Republican and anything else you got going on. Oh, well, this is great. Thank you, Mark. Um, Yeah, so there's two books by the same title that came out in the same month. Be sure to get the right one. (laughs) Yeah, please be sure to get the right one. My name is Robin Kerner. So you want If You Can Keep It by Robin Kerner. And the subhead head is Why We Nearly Lost It and How We Get It Back. Okay, so... I will link to the right book in the show notes as well. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, if you want to get a signed copy of the book, and I'm going to extend this offer for your show, Mark, go to ifyoucankeepit.us. Ifyoucankeepit.us. And you can order that as long as you're in uh, Canada or the US, you can order there and I will send you a signed copy of the book. All right. Price $17.76 plus uh, shipping. How appropriate. Um, I was very pleased that we could get that uh, price point. So yeah, if you're interested in my work, certainly if you're an activist or a candidate and you would like some actual training 
for like deploying some of the kind of things I'm talking about with you in this show, um, Mark, then go to uh, robinkerner.com. That's Robin, R-O-B-I-N, Kerner, K-O-E-R-N-E-R.com. Um, and there's some material in there on there that you may be interested in. Uh, I've got like a you know introductory seminar DVD on political communication, stuff like that. But the book is If You Can Keep It at ifyoucankeepit.us. And I really appreciate this, Mark. I appreciate it a lot. Sure thing, Robin. Well, I think if there's one thing libertarians need more help with, it's actually enacting a lot of their policies and actually changing the minds of people because I think our actual ideas are pretty darn good. So it's really just a matter of changing those paradigms and getting people to connect with what we're already trying to say. You know, that's right. And actually, if anybody's listening to this and they're still unsure whether they want to get the book, if they go to ifyoucankeepit.us, they will see the foreword that Jeffrey Tucker wrote. And Jeffrey, I was delighted that he did it. I was privileged that he did it. He said something that I really appreciated, which is that we in the liberty movement don't need another diatribe, another didactic on libertarian philosophy. What we need is work that humanizes and beautifies what we believe in in a way that enables us to change the culture and change the minds of the people. And that is very much what the book is about. So I'm really delighted that Jeffrey really kind of got the thrust of the book. And I'm delighted that you were able to write this book and share it with us because you're certainly an expert in the area. So, Robin, I wish you the best of luck going forward, both with this book and your continued involvement in the libertarian movement and helping people to better communicate these ideas. I think you're one of the best out there at it. So keep up the great work. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for everything you do as well. I appreciate this. Thanks, Robin. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with the great Robin Kerner, a guy who's been on this show several times. I think Robin has really a lot of insight that libertarians can take, not just on the actual ideas of liberty, but how to communicate them. Now, there are a lot of different methods that you can take when trying to communicate ideas. You can try to reason with people. You can try to point them towards the right philosophy and show them why certain policies lead from A to B. This is the method I use. I I try to use reason and logic with people. I try to explain to them the philosophy that I hold. And I think that's a very worthy effort that we can make on the individual level. But what we often overlook is how to get people to that point where they will listen to us in the first place. A lot of people aren't ready to hear certain ideas. I don't mean emotionally ready. I don't mean intellectually ready. I just mean their perspective is not focused in the direction where they'll see those ideas in the same way as we mean them. So to be able to communicate to people and to play off their sense of injustice, not to manipulate them, not to be Machiavellian. I know that's not Robin's take on this. That is one way to do it. You can manipulate people by saying big bombastic things, by playing on their emotions. That's what Donald Trump is doing. That's why he's been so successful. He knows how to play on people's emotions. The difference between Donald Trump and what libertarians can offer by doing the same thing is that we actually have principles that we stand behind. We don't want to manipulate people. We want to tell people the truth. But you can tell people the truth by getting them to listen to you, by addressing the fact that they feel certain injustices in the world already. This is why Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump really, in many different ways, did get a lot of political traction this year. Obviously, Trump is getting quite a bit more actual political success out of that, but they both did tap into that sense of injustice. Now, hopefully what libertarians can do is tap into that same sense of injustice and then give principled right answers and then try to show people the philosophy and intertwine all of this together. But step one really is breaking people out of the paradigm, out of the left-right paradigm, out of the Democrat-Republican paradigm, because most people, the vast majority of the populace, is still stuck right there. And if you go and check out Robin's book, if you can keep it, 
You can get some great tips on how to move that paradigm, how to shift people out of their current paradigms and be more open to a philosophy of liberty. I also want to remind you guys now about a special offer I put out there at the end of last Wednesday's episode after my conversation with Avins O'Brien about a little bonus audio that we had from that discussion where we talked about abortion for about 10 minutes or so after the episode, still had that thing recording, so I figured I would supply that to my listeners on one condition. (laughs) I gotta get something out of this too, guys, but really it's just to really help grow this show and give you a little incentive to do a small thing that can help us do that, and that is just to leave us a review. Leave us a five-star rating and a great review on any platform. On iTunes is the biggest one, but you can leave it on Stitcher Radio. You can leave it at Google Play. If you leave us a review and a rating and take a screenshot of it and send it over to me, I will give you a link so you can go and listen to my off-air conversation with Ovens O'Brien. You can send that to Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can also post it over in our private group, the Lions of Liberty Forum, which you can find on Facebook by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar. You leave us that rating and review, provide the evidence, I send you the link. It's that simple. It's just a little way to give back to you guys for doing us a very, very small favor because let me tell you right now, if only 10%, 10% of the people who are listening to this program at this moment all left reviews, I mean, we would more than triple the number of reviews we have right now. (laughs) And we currently have over 100 reviews. And that's at the barest, barest minimum of people that might be listening to this episode. The barest, barest minimum of 10% of you actually taking action on this. So we can really, really get ourselves up there in iTunes on its other platforms and get this conversation in front of more people, which is, of course, the whole reason we're doing this thing. And we're glad to have you along for the ride. We hope you keep coming back here this coming Wednesday. We're going to dig back into current events. I'm going to have a couple of my fellow Lions of Liberty colleagues on the show for one of our great roundtable discussions. We may or may not be drinking a few adult beverages at the time. It's possible. It's happened before. And until then, live long and live free.